You're listening to Duck and Cover. Welcome to episode four of Duck and Cover. For the next couple of episodes, we're going to be taking a deep dive into civil defense in an international perspective. So we're pretty excited for today's episode, which features Pietra Benesved, who is an expert on Swedish civil defense, and he's also a doctoral candidate at Umeå University in Sweden. Anthony and I were lucky to have a chance to chat with him just a few months back. Now, Pietra and I have a long civil defense history together. We met back in 2014 at a meeting for the Society for the History of Technology, where over what I remember to be a several hours long cup of coffee, we discovered all of the really interesting and different ways that his work on Swedish civil defense overlaps with my own work on American civil defense. This started a great friendship, and not long after we met, we started a working group of international civil defense scholars that I think now numbers over 20 people in countries all over the world, all of whom study civil defense history in one way or another. So today's episode is going to be rooted in Sweden's own history with civil defense, but as you're going to see, there are a lot of interesting ways that the story of civil defense in Sweden overlaps with and is representative of what was going on elsewhere in the world, including the United States. How did you get interested in this topic of air raid shelters and bunkers? Like, what was it that brought you in? Well, there's... There was one I was very interested in in this sort of symbolic nature of of arid shelters and bunkers. Like I think most people who get into this field are, I think that started somewhere during the you know the early nineteen nineties maybe in video games culture and and Hollywood movies actions type of films. I was particularly interested in churches actually and the connections between churches and arid shelters. Because in most countries, you have churches everywhere. In Sweden, you also have bunkers everywhere. So I was, I was wondering if there's a sort of symbolic connection between places where you feel safe. Doing some initial research around that topic, I realized that no one's been writing about arid shelters or bunkers or anything the like in, in Sweden. So I saw an opportunity. So the second reason is actually just I need to find something that I can Uh, be an expert on and no one's been writing about this from a historical perspective so i kind of just took that topic and started writing about it so that was kind of my my way in so you said that that bunkers are everywhere in sweden could you like because that's not the case here in the united states could you give us a sense for just how prevalent they are and where they are still so uh, sweden is has bunkers everywhere Uh, we have about from from 1938 until 2002, Sweden built about 72,000 arid shelters. You'll find them everywhere in public buildings and in uh, like apartment buildings or apartment complexes, in you know every type of building you can think of where people hang around. We have about nine million people in Sweden, so that. The, the, these 72,000 shelters, of which 65,000 are still active and intact, they cover about 70% of the whole population. So if everyone needs to evacuate, we have places for about 70%. And that's only second place to Swiss, though, because they have 120% places for the whole population or something like that. So there's a lot of money into it as well. It's like, I don't know, 65 
billion Swedish crown. Maybe that doesn't tell you very much, but maybe it's six and a half billion US dollars, maybe. The idea was that if you have a, a building that houses more than 50 people uh, during day or night, you have to have a shelter in that building. But the state will reimburse one third of it. And the, the tenants living there will pay one third. And the real estate owner pays to the last third. That's how they have structured the sort of the, the financing problem for the whole since 1940, I think. People are just on board with that. People are willing to fund this in, in to some degree to a third. <laughs> They're willing to, you know, pay that. Yeah, that's it's interesting because I haven't found that much criticism against it. I know there was a, during the early 50s when this had a, like a restart of the Arid Shelter Program after the Second World War, there was some criticism of, of, uh, from real estate organizations like interest group. And they made a, a special report. They traveled around uh, Europe and they made a report and, and they published it openly. And there was some debate about it, but it didn't end up in any any, any restrictions or something like that. So... There were some criticism, but people have generally just accepted it. And actually, I remember reading uh, when they were just about to implement this in 1940, one specific reason why they wanted a sort of integrated jurisdiction about arid shelters was that they wanted people to think that this was just a natural part of urban environments. So that was the whole intention from the start, that if there's a law towards it, you won't criticize it, you won't care about it, you just accept it as fact. And we also need a shelter. So, okay, and that will be fine. One thing you should know about Peter's work is that he thinks about civil defense in a much longer time frame than a lot of us nuclear historians. He thinks about public safety on a wider scale, something that covered most of the 20th century in Sweden. So I asked him, what do we gain? What is more interesting about studying civil defense with this wider lens? I think that the problem is not why is it better. It's just uh, why have you been looking at civil defense in such a narrow perspective? I think that's a much better question. Why did we think from the beginning that that you could talk about civil defense in a national frame? Or why did we think from the beginning that it was, you know, that we should talk about civil defense from a Cold War perspective? Why was that interesting? I think that question is is better. You 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 know, people have been trying to defend themselves for ages, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so why and, and people have been doing that collectively mm-hmm. for ages. Mm-hmm. So why are we so focused on on civil defense as a Cold War, you know, phenomenon? Uh, it's probably uh, the Americans' fault. Yes, that's what's <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's probably about the and predominance I, of American yeah. historians. And it, 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 and that's exactly what I think too. Because well, I wouldn't say that it's your fault, but that it's because civil defense history is an American import, more or less. And for natural reasons, America wasn't interested in civil defense before atomic bombs. You know, why would you guys? Because the airplanes couldn't fly that long. Yeah, you had two really large oceans on both sides. So why why bother? But in Sweden, Germany, in Great Britain, in France, in Belgium and, and Holland, all these countries had some to- some type of civil defense organization in the 1920s and 1930s. 
And they had Red Cross or sort of catastrophe organizations before that. You could say in Europe that the gas problem is really the first radioactive era. This is some sort of invisible threat. It's exactly the same type of defense measures that you do for, for gas that you do for radioactivity. You have some sort of testing equipment, you have gas masks, you have to clean yourself and conceal air and so sort of submarine type of technologies just to keep stuff out. It's exactly the same as radioactivity in the 50s and 60s. Wow. Yeah, but that, that is a threat that only American soldiers knew about. The home front didn't have any encounter with gas in, in World War One, you know. Absolutely. So in Sweden, you have factories, gas mask factories for civilians from 1938, or I think 37 and 38, and that was state-sponsored. And, and I think it's the same case in a lot of uh, European countries. And they were selling gas masks for civilians from 1938 and on. And they had training and presentations of them, and there was literature and pamphlets and brochures. And we had a, a few accidents. I think there was some, some really huge gas accident in Hamburg in the late 1920s. There was almost like 200 people dying or something out of that. And that started off a new conversation about gas, and that really precedes the nuclear. So that's a really big difference between European and American, and also to a certain extent Canadian civil defense. Could you talk a little bit about sort of the, the protest culture, the anti-nuclear movement as it evolved in, in Sweden? I don't know that much about it, but it has a kind of peculiar nature because the anti-nuclear movement in Sweden started with nuclear weapons protests. So the military organization in Sweden during the mid-50s, they were planning on getting nuclear weapons on their own because Sweden was a neutral country, right? So we wanted to sort of defend our neutrality by making a really big military organization. And they thought that nuclear weapons would be a very good asset in that aspect. So the first nuclear uh, anti-nuclear movement in Sweden was, was aimed directly at that plan and not against uh, nuclear energy or civil defense necessarily or something. It was aimed directly at the military organization and their plans on getting nuclear weapons. I, I don't think anyone... <laughs> Anyone? I don't think a lot of people know that Sweden was trying, was thinking about getting nuclear weapons. No, 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 probably not. This has been researched a lot in Sweden, but as I understand it, I think that the U.S. said no, more or less, like, no, you can't have it. Yeah, that sounds right. And, and, yeah, and Sweden, and Sweden accepted that, like, okay, okay, big brother, if you say so, <laughs> that's fine with us, uh, as long as you protect us. So we wanted to know how Swedish civil defense and American civil defense programs compared to each other. And one of the first things that Peter told us was how well-known Duck and Cover and Bertha Turtle are in Sweden. He did what we all must learn to do. You and you and you and you. Duck and Cover. Everyone knows about it, even in Sweden as well. A, people, a lot of people are referring to Duck and Cover when, when I start talking about civil defense in Sweden as well. It's like, oh, it's like Duck and Cover. It's like, that's American stuff. Keep that shit. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter's also got quite a few other thoughts on not only the relationship between Swedish civil defense and American civil defense, but how the bigger context of Europe in the 20th century mattered too. 
have you seen how have civil defense has changed in in Sweden in in response to the conversation it's had maybe with U.S. civil defense programs? Absolutely. So the, I I would say that you know during the 1920s and 30s and 40s, civil defense. Well, first of all, it's not called civil defense. It's called aerial protection. And that was the term everyone was using. And that was a German term. So civil defense or aerial protection during that age was was a German thing. They were not the, the progenitors, but they were the ones excelling at aerial protection. So that was a German thing. But during the for obvious reason, no one wanted to touch anything that was German after 1945. They didn't want any sort of resemblance to that. And in 1944, they changed from aerial protection, changed the name from aerial protection to civil defense. And after that point, I would say that civil defense officials and people interested in civil defense started looking at the American way of handling things, as they did in everything else, like you know the, the military organization and culture and you know television, films, everything. Swedish culture becomes very Americanized during the 1950s and 60s. So absolutely, I would say uh, the kind of philosophy that guided civil defense organizations during the 50s and 60s was absolutely flavored by you know the, the American way of handling it. Absolutely. You know, your work is starting to look at some of the media systems of civil defense you, you, you noted. Can you tell us a little about those media systems, what they looked like, what their aims were, you know, what impact did they have on kind of broader pop or high culture? Mm-hmm. Well, if if uh, if the media system of civil of uh, Swedish civil defense was successful or not, I can't answer that question. I think it wasn't that successful that we might want to believe. I think the films and and the products that the civil defense organizations made or, or produced, you know, they have stuck with us, and and we see them today, and we think what an odd thing. <laughs> but I think that I think that people thought exactly the same thing back then when they saw these films. What you also see is that the less interest people pay into civil defense clubs or, or organizational education, the more authorities try to produce you know, propaganda. It's difficult to say if it had any sort of effect. Maybe, maybe the biggest effect of, of uh, the Swedish civil defense media system was that uh, it's actually frightened people or just, you know, we don't want to touch it because it's so otherworldly. To think that people took propaganda as it was, it just accepted everything that people said back then. And that is, uh, uh, we think that people were stupid back then, but they weren't. They absolutely understood that this is ridiculous. You can't defend against a hydrogen bomb. So this all begs the question, what's going on with civil defense in Sweden today? And earlier in the conversation, Peter had told me that the Swedish government had defunded civil defense in 2002. And so I wanted to know a little bit more about why that happened then and what's going on in Sweden now. What was the what was the rationale for ending it in 2002? Well, in 2001, they sort of dismantled what we call the invasionsförsvar, uh, invasion defense doctrine. So that was a Cold War idea about defending against you know, invasion, usually from the Soviet Union. So they dismantled that whole organization after the Cold War. And after that, there was no logic in you know, keeping the arid shelter program going. They are restarting it now. They also started up the invasion defense doctrine again. So since 2015, they started reinventing sort of the whole military 
doctrines and and they started off civil defense in the same same time so is that sort of due to new types of threats and now it's it's necessary for different reasons than it was in the cold war or what's what's the driving rationale behind i think it's kind of the same type of threat obviously there's new weapons you know the faster missiles and longer range artillery and all that but it's kind of the same type of threat that they saw in the in the late 70s and mid 1980s was not that much of a difference it's sort of same kind of invasion idea that there would come a helicopter a russian helicopter dropping off people on the, uh, the parliament and they would try to take over sweden and blah 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 and there's uh, yeah you know it's kind of the same idea actually so so one interesting aspect of that is that even though it's very similar from the 1980s the, the new civil defense organization now is are looking at the problem in a similar way as in the, in the 1980s they are still using the cold war as something that they do not want they're saying that so we don't want a cold war organization the ones that dream about that type of organization will be disappointed and that sort of thing so they're kind of using cold war as something that we do not want but in the same time as they are restarting an organization that's exactly the same more or less yeah so that there's like a rhetorical effort there to kind of yeah. make it different and i don't think it's 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 not a intentional it's just because they don't know huh <laughs> They don't understand that they're doing exactly the same thing. With 90 <laughs> years of, of public sheltering at their disposal. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And it's very it's very funny, actually, because now they're saying in their reports about civil defense, like the nature of civil defense now or the status of it, they're saying that we're, we're missing a structural uh, aspect of civil defense. So we haven't built air shelter for 20 years. So, so the, our cities are not resilient anymore. Uh, and that is that's exactly what they were saying in the 1930s like so our cities are not resilient we need a resilient type of building philosophy really the circle has you know, been was completed or what, what do you it's an idiom for that i don't remember it yeah, it'll come full circle yeah yeah, yeah. Come exactly come full circle do you think that civil defense as as kind of uh advocated for by state programs. Do you think it could work in the case of a nuclear war? Do you think that the the premises or the objectives of civil defense could work today? I doubt that civil defense information or that sort of, if you could call it propaganda, I think it is not really no difference between 2019 civil defense propaganda and the, one, the ones you'll find in 1940s. I don't think that they do that much impact as we tend to believe or that we tend to think i think that they need to exist because a democratic state especially uh, of the reform socialistic kind that sweden has been you know uh, developing for the whole 20th century it needs to have a civil defense organization to remain credible but if it works uh, i doubt it the shelters i'm looking at there's really no evidence that they will become you know come of any sort of use at all. No one really believes it. To be honest, I don't think civil defense matter that much. Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting phenomenon to look at uh, from a historical perspective because you can learn a lot about states and, and, and people and history. But if it works in a live situation, I very much doubt it. 
Yeah. I think people work, you know. If you give people just a chance to cooperate, they will do it and they will do the best. Uh, I don't know. And some things need to exist beforehand, of course, like water containers of some sort. That's good to have. <laughs> but that's really, a, uh, you know, that's that's a really a question for the industry. Or, but, but if the state will facilitate it, I don't know. I doubt yeah. it. But the symbolic value is significant, right? It's symbolically significant. And, and I can't see a state without it. It needs mm-hmm. to exist. Mm-hmm. And this is something that they have been discussing from the start like how do we how do we handle this problem that we can't really see what will happen but we have to plan for it anyway we have to plan for armageddon do you think that in sweden today i mean we've sort of covered this a little bit but do you think in sweden today people imagine nuclear war on a smaller scale or do you think that it's still kind of this big world ending kind of event I don't think that people think of atomic warfare as something other than the, the Armageddon, end of the world, Terminator. I don't. I don't think that people imagine small-scale atomic weaponry or any any of the, of the sort. I don't think they have any conception of the kind of atomic warfare that we see the U.S. and and Russia and and China are, are planning for now. That's something completely different that we haven't seen before. But something that is very interesting to me is the staying power of the kind of middle Cold War or later Cold War conception of what a nuclear war would look like or even just a nuclear attack. It's it's, it's biblical. That's why it's it's a biblical Armageddon. And, and that's why it's it sticks. It's uh, the secular version of the Bible's Armageddon story. That's why it sticks. He's right. We've got hydrogen bombs. We've got bomb culture. Now what do we do with it? That's the big question here. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We'll see you again on Duck and Cover. Duck and Cover is funded through the Reinventing Civil Defense Project at the Stevens Institute of Technology, thanks to a generous grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York. The pod's home is Idaho State University. Our audio editor is Dylan Moon, and our web coordinator is Krista White. The pod would also like to thank Idaho State University's history department, and especially Kathy Bloodgood for all her help. Find us on the web at duckandcoverpod.home.blog and on Twitter at duckandcoverpod or email us at duckandcoverpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you in the fallout shelter.